So we come now to the time in our worship service when God speaks to us through His Word, and today He speaks to us about His Word. So please listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious God, out of your kindness you have provided for us, and we return these gifts and offerings to you, asking that you would use them for your glory in this world, the revealing of your kingdom and the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And now as we prepare to sit beneath your word, we confess that we too are in need of hearing the proclamation of the gospel. By your spirit, we pray that you would cause the good news of your kingdom to break upon our hearts, asking that you would meet us in our pain, in our fears, in our apathy, that you would meet us in our doubts, in our confusion, and in all of our questions, that you would meet us in our excitement, in our comfort, and in our happiness. Wherever we find ourselves this day, we pray that you would meet us with the good news of the gospel, that you would reveal to us the reality of our brokenness, our sin, and our helplessness. Remind us that no matter our current circumstances, that we are far more broken than we can even imagine. But we pray that you would reveal to us also the reality of the good news. Bring the good news near to us today. Remind us that our deepest hopes Dreams and desires are met in the gospel. For in Jesus, we need to be reminded again and again that we are far more broken than even we can imagine. But at the same time, we are far more loved, accepted, and secure than we could have ever dared dream, than we could have ever dared hope. Meet us, we pray, for your own glory and for our good. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Invite the children ages three to six to be dismissed to children's church now. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary. This morning we are beginning a new series, a series on the Ten Commandments. And I actually preached a series on the Ten Commandments five years ago. Uh, But it's a series that deserves regular repetition, uh, and not only because you can preach it multiple times without ever preaching the same thing, uh, although that's true, but it's really this, because to understand law and gospel is to understand Christianity. 
Um, one author writes that there is no more practical question than that of the relationship of a Christian to the law. I mean, how is God's law meant to function in our lives? Um, what is our relationship to the law outside of Jesus? And what's our relationship to the law in Jesus as believers? And how does Jesus himself interpret the commands? Um, how are we to apply the law to our contemporary culture? Uh, and how does the law fit all of our intuitive longing for both justice and mercy in the world? Well, all these questions and their answers will kind of be forming the, the background throughout this series. But, but listen, the great reformer Martin Luther, he wrote that anyone who knows the Ten Commandments perfectly knows the entire Scripture. Right. See, in some ways, the law acts like a key, and it's a key to unlocking the wonder and the mystery of the whole story of the Bible. And my title for this whole series is, is being driven to grace and shaped by grace. So what I want to do this morning is take the first part of that and kind of turn the key halfway, if you will, with this passage in Galatians and consider how the law really drives us into the arms of Jesus, into grace. Uh, for good or for ill, uh, depending on your perspective, the college football season is underway. Um, in 2000, um, a few friends of mine and I went to Baton Rouge to watch LSU play the University of Tennessee. Um, and my dad had got us these great tickets, and it was a night game in Baton Rouge, Death Valley, and it was just a crazy atmosphere. And the game went into overtime. It might have even gone into double overtime. I can't remember. But the atmosphere was just, it was just unbelievable. It, it was just nuts. And so these friends of mine and I decided that if we won the game, we were going to rush the field. <laughs> and so we went down to the end zone, and, uh, and we were waiting for the end of the game in overtime. And an LSU receiver caught the pass right in front of us in the end zone, and we won the game. And then, and then it happened. <laughs> this huge wave of humanity poured into and onto the football field. And it was crazy. And we were riding the crest of this wave. We were in the front of this wave, right? So we went right to the goalpost, and we hoisted a friend of ours up on the goalpost. And, um, and you know, when that happened, and by the way, I'm not trying to bring up bad memories for UT fans. I know there are some here. Um, the next year, Tennessee beat us decisively. No overtime was even necessary. And you'll also be good again, even though you're not right now. But, you know, I bring it up. I, I, bring, I bring that whole scene up because in that moment, I never felt so excited and so terrified and so helpless all at the same time. Um, we, you know, hoisted our friend up onto these goalposts. And the next thing I know, we were on the 50-yard line. And I have no idea how we got there. We didn't even intend to go there. I'm slapping players on the helmets, and it was just crazy. I don't know how we got to the 50-yard line. It was this, it was the push of 40,000 crazy Cajuns, you know, behind us that just swept us up 
and carried us away. And um, all of a sudden I realized now I understand how someone could get crushed in a mob. I mean, we were helplessly, scarily, and also excitedly driven to a destination. So here's what I want to say to you. Helplessly and sometimes scarily, but also excitedly, the law was given to us to drive us to grace, to, drive, to pick us up and move us into the arms of Jesus. I mean, this is what Paul is saying in Galatians, in this passage in Galatians. He said, you have misread the law. You, I don't care how moral you think you are or how moral you really are. You, you do not understand the law at all if you are not being driven into the arms of Jesus. So here are the three things that I want us to consider from this passage this morning as we think about how the law drives us to grace and drives us to Jesus. Here are the three things. The law reveals, the law breaks, and the law leads. Okay, so first, the law reveals. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted an author who wrote that it's in our nature to prefer the illusion because we have a deep need to be buffered from reality. And I don't want to go into it all again here, but we are all actively involved in numerous strategies to avoid the reality of our human brokenness. Francis, Fran, Francois, excuse me, de la something else I can't pronounce, um, he wrote something also pretty profound about our human condition in the mid-1600s. He wrote, We are so accustomed to disguise ourselves to others that in the end, we become disguised to ourselves. See, this desperate pursuit of ours that we're all actively involved in to avoid reality, to hide and disguise ourselves so much that in the end, we've lost all sight of who we are in that. And so if you haven't guessed what, what, where I'm headed with all this, I'm saying that the law was given to reveal who we really are. It, it, the law was given to give us a blunt look at reality, the reality of our human brokenness. And this is why John Calvin referred to the law as a mirror to help us avoid being deceived about ourselves. See, Paul isn't here, he isn't just crippling or disabling the meritocracy of religion in this passage. He's crucifying it. He is destroying it altogether. See, even if you don't believe the Bible, we all know the incredible pressure of meritocracy as Americans. I mean, we are constantly measuring and being measured by our performance. Our identity stands and falls based on our achievements, right? Whether, and whether that resume is made up of our morality or a social code or being skinny enough or, or, or productive enough, we live and die on our merits and demerits. And Paul is writing to a group of people who were tempted to use obedience or conformity to God's law as a measuring stick, a measuring stick of rightness before God and approval by God. And Paul is saying in very, very clear terms in this passage that we read earlier that the law never could and never can merit rightness for you before God. Verse 21, the law cannot give life. 
Okay, so if that's true, then why does the law matter? Right? That is the logical question Paul turns to answer in verse 19. And he says there that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then he says this stuff in the next verses about angels and intermediaries. And the best I can do is say, I have no idea what that means. And nobody else knows what it means, by the way. But verse 19 and all the other verses are extremely clear here. The law was given and the law was added to reveal your sin. It was given to function like a mirror in your life. And you do not use a mirror to clean your dirty face. You use a mirror in order that you might see where and how dirty your face is. See, with each command, a light switch is flipped. And when that light switch is flipped and the lights come on, the cockroaches in your life and mine, they are exposed. They are brought into the light. But listen closely. The law doesn't only reveal the presence of sin in our lives. Paul is saying the law also reveals the power of sin in our lives. See, in verse 22 and verse 23, you meet words like this. Imprisoned. It shows up twice. Held captive. In other words, the law reveals not just your sin, but your slavery to sin. See, you and I should not be fooled that your sin or your brokenness is simply a matter of bad choices or bad habits or misinformation and mistakes in your life. Paul is saying sin is a master. It has come to own you. And it is a harsh and terrible master in your life. The law comes to confront us in our denial. Flannery O'Connor, a great Southern writer, she wrote, To know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against the truth and not the other way around. See, you measure the truth against yourself and you will become disguised even to yourself. But measure yourself against this truth, against God's law, and you will see clearly your brokenness and your slavery. You know, people are furious. People are furious when they've been duped through false advertising, right? I mean, there's lawsuits about it all the time. Um, it, there's enough of it out there that we are all skeptical, cynical even of it, right? We distrust the manufacturers and we distrust what the politicians tell us. We distrust big companies and we distrust small companies. We are skeptical of every email advertisement and every pop-up window that shows up on our internet, right? We feel used, we feel abused, we feel cheapened, and we feel shamed when we buy into false advertising. Who wants to be conned, right? Who wants to be cheated or swindled or victimized like that? Absolutely no one. But I'm telling you this morning that there is a lot of false advertising about the law. And many of us have bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. The lie that you can earn God's smile if you just perform a little better. right? Swindled by the lie that you can take the law and begin to fix yourself with it. Cheated by all your efforts to just try harder this time. That's what I got to do. I got to become more disciplined. Shamed in your life by the tyrannical voices of guilt and fear, which if you are honest are almost always the loudest voices in your life. But God will not swindle you. Right? He's not going to pull a fast one on you. 
He wants us to be clear that the law never could give life. It was given to you in order to reveal reality. So you could look in the mirror and see what is really there. Sin's presence and power that is written all over our lives. Now, unfortunately, (laughs) this sermon gets worse before it gets better. Um, Because second, I want us to consider not only that the law reveals, but how the law also breaks. And you have to dwell with me just a little bit longer on that metaphor that Paul uses of the law acting like a jailer in our lives, imprisoning us. As Americans, we love our freedom, and rightly so. But I'm not here thinking of political freedom. I'm thinking of an ideology, an ideology that is shouted at us every minute of every day. And that idea is that freedom is necessarily the absence of restraint and constraint. See, we've thrown off these commandments and we've looked at them and we said, that's what's wrong with Christianity and religion. Rules. It's so, so very oppressive, right? Rules about money and sexuality and the way we spend our time and the way we speak to one another. But here's what I need you to realize. We have cast off 10 commandments only to be enslaved by 10,000 commandments in our lives. I mean, we are enslaved to self and to every passion and to every desire imaginable outside of these commands. Here's the law as a jailer, and it's showing you that you are not free at all. Recently, I finished reading this novel called The Goldfinch. Um, I don't know if anybody else has read it, but it's a fascinating and very disturbing book at the same time by Donna Tartt. And near the end... The main character in this novel, a guy named Theodore Decker, he's reflecting on his life. And I don't need to share the whole thing with you, but he spent his life, right, hiding shameful secrets. And he spent his life trying to right all these wrongs in his life. And near the end of this book, he reflects on what he calls in this story a poisonous whisper that never wholly left me. See, it was this gnawing, nagging whisper in his life that he says some days it just lingered on the threshold of his hearing. But on other days, he says, it roared up uncontrollably into a sort of lurid visionary frenzy. So what was this ever-present whisper, right, that sometimes was quiet and hushed but still there and other times roaring? He reflects that it was in the end a whisper telling him, and here's the quote, that the world and everything in it was intolerably and permanently broken, unbearable claustrophobia of the soul, the windowless room, no way out, waves of shame and horror. Okay, so that's a little depressing. Um, But it's not a bad description. It's not a bad description at all of how the law is meant to work in your life. Some days you and I have managed to push it to the edges of our hearing and almost hush it so that it's it's barely there, but you can't get rid of it entirely. It's still whispering. But on other days, you know this, it roars up into a lurid visionary frenzy revealing the intolerable and permanent brokenness, not just of this world, but of you and me. And when it does its work, It does feel 
as if the walls are pressing in on our souls. Claustrophobic, windowless and dark. Paul says the law is a jailer. If you're hearing what Paul is saying here, it might just transform the way that you think about the law. Because it's not ever really so much that you break God's law as that Paul is saying the law comes and it breaks you. It comes to topple your meritocracy and your pride. It comes to destroy your independence and your self-reliance. It comes to silence every one of your rationalizations. It presses in upon you to break you in your illusions and to bring you to an end of yourself. Let me paint a little picture for you. Actually, we'll let the Bible paint the picture here, but it's in Isaiah chapter 6. And we get this story of the prophet Isaiah. And he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees God himself high and lifted up on his throne, right? And it was an awesome sight. I mean, angels were singing in the temple. There's smoke and there's shaking and there's glory. And you think, what an incredible privilege to see God like that. I mean, the angels are shouting their chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I've got to imagine that they were in tune and in harmony. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful. But that's not all. <laughs> because Isaiah says when he saw God like that, he cried out, woe to me. That's a way of calling down curses upon himself. He says, I am ruined. Or in other other words, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man walking, right? He said, because he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. What in the world was going on here? Isaiah saw God in all the perfections of his holy character. Holy, holy, holy. But when those lights came on, all his cockroaches were exposed. When those lights came on, he got a good look in the mirror. And in that moment, the law wasn't breaking. He was breaking apart. He was coming undone at the seams. He was ruined. He was a dead man. But at first blush, when I tell you this, you might be thinking, that's totally different. Um, That's Isaiah seeing God. That's not the law. Okay, <laughs> let, me, let me destroy that uh, for you right now. Um, the reason we think that, the reason we're tempted to think that, that there's a difference there is because we have disconnected the law from God and we have treated it, right, as an abstraction, right, as arbitrary rules and codes of conduct for us. But here's the deal. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, where the law was given on Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel, they had been delivered from their slavery, a slavery that had lasted 400 years in Egypt. But why were they liberated? They were liberated so that they could assemble at the foot of this mountain and worship. That's why they were liberated. But you know what happened immediately after God spoke these Ten Commandments? It says that the people trembled with fear. And stayed at a distance. And then it says that the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Same thing Isaiah was saying. And this is why. 
God is not giving arbitrary, disconnected rules for us to follow in the commandments. He is saying, you came out to me in the wilderness at this mountain, and now I'm going to show you who I am. This is who I am. And you were redeemed to reflect my character. The perfections of my character are my faithfulness, my veracity, my truth, my care, my protection, and on and on. See, God is saying, you cannot break my words. You cannot, not one iota will disappear from the law, Jesus says. They cannot be broken. But if you hear them rightly, God is saying, they will always break you. Okay. It's a lot of bad news, so thank goodness for third points. See, when the law does its job of revealing, of really coming in and stripping you of your disguises and, and, and bursting the bubble of your illusions, and when the law presses into your soul, claustrophobic and windowless and dark and all of that, breaking you apart, when that happens, the law which cannot give you life, Paul says it takes you by the hand. And leads you to the only one who can give life to Jesus. Okay, so last, that's what we need to see. We need to see how the law leads and leads us to Jesus. See, Paul says in verse 23 that we were held captive under the law and imprisoned. Yes, it says that, but it also says this. Until the coming faith would be revealed. When faith comes, Paul is saying, the cell door on your prison is sprung open. And the shackles fall off. The iron bars that left you insecure, does God really love me? They are broken when faith comes, Paul is saying. The shackles of the performance treadmill of your meritocracy, they fall off when faith comes. The padlock of anxiety that we all know that paralyzes us with fear, wondering if we've done enough. Paul is saying it's broken when faith comes. This prison cell of your insecure pride... Your insecure pride that keeps you comparing yourself to others, judgmental and bitter in your life. It is demolished, Paul says, when faith comes. On that quote I put on the front of your bulletin, John Stott, he is correct when he writes this. After God gave, promise, gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid of man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. I love that quote. See, the law... It prepares by despair, right? It reveals and breaks in order to lead us to faith. Faith in what or faith in who, right? Paul switches metaphors very quickly in verse 24 and 25 from a jailer to a guardian or to a tutor. I mean, some translations say the law was put in charge or supervised us. The original Greek word 
is for a, a tutor or a servant. And that, that person's job, who was, whose it was, was to discipline the children, right? Was to take them to school and to educate them. A few weeks ago, school started in Shelby County. And driving through our neighborhoods, we saw these kids lined up at the bus stop, waiting on the bus, right? But there's always one kid who's terrified to get on that bus, And so his mom takes him by the hand and you see them standing there, mom and child at the bus stop, her holding his hand, waiting for that bus um, in order that she would put him on that bus and take him where he needs to go. No, No school buses in Galatia, but that's the imagery Paul is using, that the law takes you by the hand and leads you to Jesus that grabs you and brings you to the only person who can give life. See how Paul is saying in verses 24 through 26 that the law leads us to Jesus in order that we would be justified by faith. Scottish elder David Dixon, he was on his deathbed when he said this. He said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds and I've thrown them in a heap. Then I fled from both of them to Christ and in him I have peace. That is what a toppled meritocracy looks like. It is to look into the mirror of the law and flee not only your failed performance, but also your righteousness. As far as I know, every major world religion that there is has some form or some way of talking about repentance from sin. But only the gospel topples your meritocracy completely and entirely and gives you real, total, and absolute freedom when it says you must repent And flee from your righteousness too. We do not become God's sons, (laughs) Paul is saying. We do not earn God's smile by our obedience. We become his sons and we have his smile when we have fled from our sin and our righteousness into the arms of Jesus. Let me real quick tell you how the law giving in Exodus chapter 20 ends. Uh, We'll get there soon enough where we read these passages out of Exodus chapter 20. But I've already told you that as, as soon as God spoke, as soon as he spoke, the people were terrified. But here's what happened immediately after that. It's at the end of Exodus chapter 20. Immediately after that, God told Moses to go build an altar. Now, why do you build an altar? You build an altar to make sacrifices. Why do you make sacrifices? You make sacrifices to make atonement for sin. Now, here's what I'm saying. Paul isn't giving us some kind of apostolic sleight of hand, new interpretation of what what the law was meant to do. This is the way it has always been. The law always has done its job when it leads you to a place of blood and sacrifice, to an altar. It drives you to a place of blood and death. In Exodus, animals were slaughtered, but that was just a symbol. That was just a symbol pointing forward, pointing forward to a day when God's own son would climb the altar and be sacrificed for us. See, when his own son climbed that altar to be sacrificed, what was happening there? Jesus was making atonement for sin. It was an exchange wherein he took your sins and gave to you his perfect righteousness. On that cross, he was forsaken so that you could know that in Jesus, you really are a son, a daughter 
of the king so that you could know the smile that Jesus earned for you. It now rests upon you and you are free. See, the insecure questions of God's love for you, they are only solved when you go to that altar. They are solved not when you, when you have measured up in your performance. They are solved when you see the links that God would go just to have you. The paralysis of fear, wondering if you have done enough, it, it is gone when you realize that Jesus has achieved everything for you in your place. Your insecure pride that, that breeds judgmental attitudes, right, and bitterness in your life, it is replaced with confident humility. When you see that you are so broken that only the death of God could save you, but that you are also so loved that this God willingly gave his life for you. There are four simple things I, w- I want to end with very quickly here. And I want to I be encouraging you to do these things throughout this series. Here they are. You need to pray. You need to be in community. You need to ask questions about your identity. And you need to worship. First, pray. The, the law, I'm telling you, uniquely drives us to Jesus. And you need to be praying that God, by his spirit, would use the law like that in your life. At times you might feel terrified and helpless, but that is not where you are meant to stay in this. This should also be exciting for you. It should be exciting for us, exciting because we are here to learn of the wonderful freedom, the wonderful rest, the wonderful joy that we have in Jesus. Real freedom, real rest, real joy that you have been chasing all your life, but in counterfeits. You've been chasing it all your life only to have it feel like it's constantly slipping through your fingers. Only the gospel, only in the gospel do we get what we desperately need. And so you need to pray for it. But second, community. If you aren't in one of, your communi- one of our community groups, I encourage you to join one. The community groups, they are going to be these simple times of discussion where we talk about the sermon on Sunday mornings, on Sunday evenings in smaller groups. One author and theologian writes that we should put on the law a warning label. And that warning label, he says, is don't try to obey any of these commandments alone. The law cannot be understood rightly and it cannot be applied rightly in isolation. The law requires us to be together. It requires one another. Third, identity. If you are alive and breathing in this room today, you struggle with identity. It's part of our broken human condition. But throughout this series, you need to be asking the question, who am I and how does that change my life? The theologians, William Willimon, which is like an awesome name, William Willimon, um, and Stanley Hauerwas, they write that the commandments are a countercultural way of life for those who know who they are and whose they are. In many ways, the question of identity, and we'll see this throughout, it is the question underneath all the other questions. It is the hard but freeing question that we all have to ask in going through this. Fourth and finally, worship. I mentioned this earlier. The Israelites, they have assembled at Mount Sinai, and they have assembled to worship when God spoke these words. They were a revelation of who God was, but they were also instructions to his people on how to worship, right? Worship is not music. And worship is not just an hour on Sunday mornings. 
The whole Bible testifies to this, that worship is all of life. And you and I know this instinctively, and we could pile story upon story to illustrate this. Worship money, worship sex, worship self, worship power, worship whatever, and it will definitely shape you. The living and true God, he has invited you to come to his law to see who you really are and to drive you to grace in Jesus. But the living God, he also invites you to come to the law to worship. And when you do, he promises you that he will shape you by his grace, that he will make you human again. And that's where we're going to pick up next Sunday. So I'm going to awkwardly end there for us. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word you have given to us. We even thank you for the law. If we are to be honest, we have lots of mixed emotions about your law. On the one hand, we are appalled when we see your law neglected, when we see it abused. On the other hand, we're terrified to come to it and sit underneath its scrutiny. Father, we pray that you would allow us to sit under the law in order that you would drive us to Jesus. Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear and that in hearing that your law would reveal to us who we really are and that your law would break us and bring an end to ourselves. We pray that we would find ourselves At the same time, terrified, helpless, and excited. But most of all, we pray that you would lead us to Jesus. That you would show us that Jesus was the one man, the God-man, who came and fulfilled your law perfectly. But that we would also see that he fulfilled it for us. In order that in him we might have his righteousness and all our insecurity and all our fears and all our paralysis would be swept away as we look into the face of the one, the one who came to endure the curse of the law for his people, the one who came and through his death and resurrection broke the shackles of sin toppled its power in order that in him we might have life and have it eternal and abundant in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.